here. Um, close this up. All right, let's have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening for another opportunity we have to come into your presence and to request uh, that you give us uh, the enlightenment, illumination of the Holy Spirit as we look into the scripture again tonight. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you have given us your word and we live in an age when it's very accessible to us in various forms and we we are thankful for that but we know that uh, to whom much is given much is required and so we know that since we have this access we are therefore responsible to act upon what we know and learn and so forth so we pray you'll help us this evening to do that thank you for each one who's able to join us <clears throat> thank you for your healing hand for our members uh, our, of our group. Pray you'll continue to bless those who are suffering chronic difficulties and issues uh, for Lori and uh, her situation for Hugh. Um, we just pray your healing hand in those situations uh, as we go forward. So thank you again for this time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> We're looking here at uh, chapter 11 uh, in our study. We're dealing with this final section where Paul in chapters 10 through 13, uh, where we, I mentioned there's certainly a change of tone when we get to chapter 10. Uh, it appears Paul has received more information or new information. That's what it appears like about uh, some difficulties, more difficulties at Corinth caused by outsiders, people who have come in and claim to be apostles with apostolic authority. They claim to be from Jerusalem. They claim they supersede the apostle Paul. They question his authority to speak and command and so forth. They seem to be trying to take credit for what's happened in Corinth and so forth for the Corinthian church. And so Paul is engaged in this long uh, defense of his authority, his right uh, to instruct uh, and command the Corinthian church, which of course he established on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18. So we've seen his uh, defense, what, we, what I call defense of his authority in 10.1 through 11.15. And then Paul finds it necessary to, uh, to defend his accomplishments or his credentials, <clears throat> we might say, uh, to defend himself. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like to talk about himself or boast about himself. And so he says, I'm going to do this, but it's really rather foolish. It's, it's boasting like a fool would boast. But he says, you know, you put up with that kind of stuff. You seem to love that kind of stuff because the other people come in and they make all these grand uh, uh, statements <clears throat> about what they've done and so forth. So in this boasting as a fool, Paul begins by 
first of all, in 16 through 21, explaining his reluctance to do this. You know, he, why, you know I'm, I'm really quite reluctant to do this. But finally, when he gets to verses 21, 21b here, through 33, uh, we see he, he begins uh, to talk about what I call here Paul's personal heritage and his sufferings. Uh, usually don't boast about your sufferings, but so that's, uh, that's going to be a strange turn here uh, in Paul's uh, resume. You know, if you fill out your, your resume to get a job, you don't put negative things. You put everything positive you can about yourself and so forth. Well, he begins here then in verse 21b. He says, uh, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, you know, I'm speaking as a fool. Again, he wants to remind them that he doesn't think this is really a good thing to do normally, but he's been forced to do it by the Corinthians, as you'll say. Uh, so whatever anyone else dares to boast about, he says, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. So, as I say, Paul has finally made several attempts to begin his boasting, and now he finally does it. Uh, it's distasteful, as I said, but he does it. So anything his rivals say, he will, he will uh, match that. Uh, so the first three claims begin with this, so am I. They have these claims, well, so am I. He begins with his heritage here. The word Hebrews is used in two senses. Uh, the primary one, like Philippians 3, is that of a pure-blooded Jew. Secondly, it means Jews of Palestinian descent, especially those who were native, native tongue was Aramaic or Hebrew, and whose intellectual and cultural heritage was within Palestinian rather than uh, diaspora Judaism. Remember, this is the distinction we see in Acts chapter 6. Uh, in the early church, there are Jews who grew up in Palestine or Israel in that area, whose native language is Hebrew, Aramaic. Then there are Jews who have come from outside, who were born outside of what we call the Holy Land. Uh, they're called the Grecian Jews because their language is not that. They speak Greek mainly. And uh, so there is this division uh, in the church between these two groups. Uh, there's this distinction that comes up between them. And uh, you remember they complain in Acts 6 that the problem is their widows are being neglected, the Grecian widows. So Paul is at least claiming the former sense, that is, he's a pure-blooded Jew. He may be claiming, claiming the Palestinian uh, descent. Now, he wasn't born there, you know, in the Holy Land. He was born in Tarsus, but he, but he went there when he was at a young age, probably, you know, 12 or 13. He goes there and he studies on Gamaliel. So he may have considered himself really uh, of that heritage, you know. And so he's trying to say, I'm as much a Hebrew as they are. Or as an Israelite, I say here, Paul was a member of God's people, Israel. Uh, are they Israelites? So am I. As a descendant of Abraham, who had been circumcised on the eighth day, 
Remember, he mentions that on Philippians 3, Paul says, Paul was an heir to the covenants based in, on God's promises. So all in all, with regards to his descent, his citizenship, his heritage, he's saying he was, Paul saying, I'm equal to these rivals. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, he says. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Remember in, in the Old Testament, certain punishments were 40 lashes. But in order not to break the law, so that you didn't break, so a Jew wouldn't break the law, they only gave 39. Uh, so he put a hedge up around the commandments. This is one of the things that the rabbis did <clears throat> and as Judaism developed. Uh, because you didn't want to, you didn't want to break the law and exercising this punishment. What if you miscount and give forty-one? Well, you've broken the law. So thirty-nine was what we, what, what they gave people. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now that's a Roman, that's a Roman punishment, beating with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day, a night, and a day in the open sea. So Paul now turns from the matter of heritage, verse 22, to his record of service. And he lays claim to superiority over his rivals here. He says, a more, much harder, more frequently, more severely in verse uh, uh, 23. So not simply equality with them, you know. He begins to speak, you know, as a madman here, not simply as a fool. He says, man, I'm out of my mind to do this. <laughs> uh, so are they servants of Christ? Means do they claim to be? Well, verse 13 gives Paul's real estimate of them. Remember, he says there, he said, for such are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. So here in verse 23, is, it's their estimate of themselves. They're servants of Christ. And Paul just concedes that for a moment for the sake of comparison. Uh, uh, are they servants of Christ? Uh, you know, I am more. So he's going to concede that for the second, for the, for the, for the moment. Um, <clears throat> at verse 23, Paul's list of accomplishments begins here. However, it recounts, as I say here, not triumphs, but apparent defeats and relates not to strengths, but to weaknesses. Weaknesses. Now, this is uh, this is this is uh, this is uh, goes along. It accords well with the view, his view, Paul's view, uh, that lowliness and weakness in Christian service provide an incontestable vindication of apostleship. So Paul sees, uh, you know, not like modern power preachers and charismatic preachers as displays of power. He sees displays of weakness. When I'm weak, I'm strong, he'll say, you know. Um, I say, when we compare this list of Paul's sufferings, and these is what, what they really are, you know, here, 
in this list when he talks about uh, um, flogged, imprisonment, exposure to death, the beating by Jews and, and the Romans and so forth, shipwrecked, all these things. Uh, when we compare this list here in verse 23 through 25, with the account of experiences and acts, it becomes apparent that Luke's record is selective and incomplete. Um, that is, Luke doesn't, in his account, if you read through you know, the book of Acts and read Paul's life there and his missionary journeys, it's clear from this, at least, it's, it seems very clear, it's obvious, that Luke doesn't record everything. Uh, in fact, there's a lot going on that Luke, does, Luke hasn't recorded about Paul's experiences here. Now, this, what Paul is writing and, and what he says here at this time only takes us up to Acts chapter 20 and verse 3. <clears throat> Remember, uh, Paul is at Ephesus after... He, um, where he writes 1 Corinthians and writes the severe letter and so forth. He leaves Ephesus after that uproar in Acts 19. And he sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set up for Macedonia. We've talked about that several times. Remember, he goes to Troas. He looks for Titus. He doesn't find Titus. He goes on to Macedonia. And in Macedonia... 2 Corinthians 7, he finds Titus and he writes 2 Corinthians. So, so what, what Paul describes here in verses 23 through 25 had to happen before Acts chapter 20 and verse 2. Because verse 2, he travels throughout Macedonia, speaking many words. And then he comes to Greece, to Corinth. So that's, that's in the future. After writing of 2 Corinthians, he comes to Corinth. He stays there three months. He writes Romans. Next. And because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So this, this, these sufferings that Paul endured here only take us up <clears throat> to near the end of his third missionary journey. They don't, they don't take him to a lot of other incidents that uh, happened in Paul's life. Um, so Luke records, you know, a lot of these instances, but not all of them. Uh, he records his, you know, Paul talks about his stonings here uh, that he endured. Uh, um, he says, uh, I was pelted with stones. Well, we know about that. Uh, that was at Lystra, uh, where he was pelted with stones. That's Acts 14. So we know that. Mm. Yep, uh, he only mentions, Luke only mentions one imprisonment up to this point, and that's at Philippi. Remember Acts 16, Paul is in prison at Philippi. He and Silas and the this Philippian jailer and all that. He only mentions one imprisonment. Uh, and so Paul mentions, you know, more here, uh, uh, been in prison more frequently. Well, that's, you know, there's only one that we know of in the book of Acts. So 
the point is more things happened. Um, at, at Philippi, he got he got beat with rods, but that that's the Roman beating. And again, Paul mentions three uh, three times he was beaten with rods. Um, so we don't know anything of these other imprisonments. We don't know anything of these other beatings. Uh, we don't know anything about these five whippings he got from Jews from some sort of synagogue courts. Uh, we don't, Nax doesn't record anything about that. Um, we don't know anything about, uh, you know, three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, the shipwreck that we know about happens after this, on the shipwreck to Rome and so forth and all that. So anyway, you know, Paul's life was more eventful than, than what we even imagined uh, from reading the book of Acts. He says, verse 26, I had been constantly on the move. I had been in danger <clears throat> from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. So I say here, Paul proceeds next to list dangers that he has encountered and deprivations he has endured in his service for Christ. He speaks about uh, dangers, you know, from bandits. Um, he could be thinking about this time here on his first, his second, I mean, his, his first missionary journey when he comes from Cyprus, um, comes from Cyprus up here to this area of Galatia. And he travels from Pamphylia here. Perga and Pamphylia up to Antioch and Pisidia. He's got to cross the mountains here. We know uh, this was a very hazardous journey from what we understand uh, other accounts of the time. Uh, bandits were there, uh, you know, and there were swollen rivers. It was re really a, a, you know, we Luke doesn't tell us anything about that, but it was uh, from what we understand historically very difficult, very dangerous. Uh, uh, Acts records, you know, a number of plots. He says, in danger from my fellow Jews, there were a number of plots that Paul faced of his own countrymen, countrymen, as he says here. Uh, remember Acts 9 on the, uh, in Damascus, he uh, faced opposition there. He got to Jerusalem. The Jews were against him. He had to leave there. Uh, John Fort, I mean, Acts 14, we talked about the stoning. And so, so numerous times we, we, in the book of Acts, we do read about these uh, dangers from fellow Jews and so forth. Um, we know about incidents uh, of de Gentiles, of course, Philippi, Acts 16. There he was opposed by Gentiles. And at Ephesus, uh, Acts 19, there was a big riot there, you remember, and, the, and they took Paul into the theater. They, they took uh, some Paul's uh, uh, disciples, some fellow workers into the theater. You know, Paul wanted to go in there and they said, no, don't go in there though. So there was a riot for a couple of hours there <clears throat> in Ephesus. 
So there was all kinds of dangers, false brethren, counterfeit Christians, you know. I'll say here, Paul's sleepless nights could refer to insomnia because of physical discomfort or illness, but more probably the phrase alludes to voluntary sleeplessness from pressure of work. Paul may have known hunger because of his determination not to accept support from the Corinthians. Cold and naked probably refers to going without adequate clothing and or shelter. Then he says in verse 28, besides everything else I face, the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So Paul continues his list of trials with his own pastoral concern. So in contrast to the previous mentioned afflictions, this pressure you know, of his concern for these churches he had established was a constant, you know, burden, a constant daily, faced daily this pressure of concern about these churches I founded, how are they doing? Um, you know, if, 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 we, <laughs> if we think about just the church at Corinth and, and their struggles and problems that Paul had to deal with, this must have been really in a kind of an oppressive burden that Paul dealt with, dealing with all these situations. I'll say here from verse 29, we see that Paul, the, the spiritual father, totally identifies with his children. You know, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? So Paul says, I identify with these issues and problems of these Christians from these churches that I have established. Um Paul uses the word weak to refer to a number of things in his epistles. Uh, but, uh, you know, often it's, you know, a weak conscience, uh, uh, our weakness in the face of temptation. Um, and then he says, you know, I inwardly burn. Uh, uh, who's led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Um, so probably what this is, is Paul is, this is probably burning with indignation. Paul is upset. Um, we have a person, a Christian, a fellow believer who is led into sin by others. And this is very upsetting. I, I burn with indignation. I'm, I'm very upset about this. And, and, and we're, what we're probably talking about here is the false apostles. These false apostles have come to the church and they're leading people astray from the truth. And this is very hard for the apostle Paul. This is very upsetting to him. He's indignant about it. It's just troubling to him oppressively. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Finally, Paul turns to one of his daring escapades, verses 30 through 33, as we'll see. Consistent with his determination to play the fool, Paul chooses an incident that demonstrates weakness rather than strength. So he says, I'm going to boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Um, Paul prided himself on the evidence of his weakness that became 
evidence of God's power in his life in delivering him. So he, he delighted in showing these incidents, these difficulties where God you know, could be given credit, where God could be given praise for supporting and delivering him. So Paul, again here, as we've seen, sometimes takes an oath. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ knows I'm not lying when he suspects that people might, you know, doubt his truthfulness because he comes up with a quite, a, quite an, an incident here, quite an amazing thing. He says in verse 32, in Damascus, the governor <clears throat> under King Eratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hand. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. This verse uh, describes Paul's amazing, almost unbelievable escape from Damascus. Thus, we can see, you know, why he needed to fortify his account here with an oath. Now, this King Eratus uh, is well known. Uh, he is the father-in-law of Herod Antipas, one of the Herod's son that uh, ruled after um, that ruled after uh, Herod died. Herod Antipas. He married <clears throat> Eratus's fourth King Eratus the fourth's daughter. Eratus ruled over the kingdom of the Nabataeans, and uh, the uh, Let's see here, where am I at? I guess I missed one, I'm sorry. I should have put that slide up there. Um, this area of the Nabataeans is out here, you know, on the east of what we think of as the Holy Land over here. So east of the Jordan River, <clears throat> this is the area of the Nabataeans, all the way from Damascus up here always south down almost you know into the Sinai down here into the Sinai and uh, this is the area of this particular king he ruled from uh, the Nabataean Arabs from 9 BC to AD 40. Uh, this is the Arabia of Galatians 117. Um, so it's, this is accounted in Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> it Saul grew more and more powerful. This is uh, after Saul's conversion. Remember, he was converted on the road to Damascus. He goes into Damascus, and this disciple Aeneas comes to him and tells him, you know, what God has already told him in a vision, what Jesus has told him, that he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's going to have to suffer much to bring this gospel to the Gentiles. So Saul goes into Damascus. He baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So, you know, Paul, in a sense, didn't really have to go to seminary. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's God's providence how he, how he, how he uh, arranges things in people's lives and so forth. So he chooses Saul... But Saul is already an expert in the Old Testament. So he knows the Old Testament, but he's got blinders on. He's got the blinders of unbelief. And once those come off, he, he can see in the Old Testament 
the messianic aspects and so forth. So he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy to kill uh, among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Night and day, they kept close watch. The followers took by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And so <clears throat> Paul says about this instance in Galatians 1, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me. I went into Arabia, to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. So Paul, uh, this is this sort of three-year period we talk about after his conversion before he goes to Jerusalem. So he's saved on the, on the Damascus, road to Damascus. He goes into Damascus. He's, he's preaching the gospel there in Damascus. He has to leave uh, because the king and the governor is after him. And so he, uh, I mean, we don't know why Eratus or his governor wanted to arrest Paul you know, maybe they were offended by Paul's evangelistic activity in the kingdom. Uh, but anyway, Paul immediately has to leave and he goes into Arabia, he says, which would be this area here in Nabatea, but where, I don't know. And it's, there's a three-year break between his conversion and his first visit to Jerusalem that he talks about uh, there in Galatians. Um, so, uh, this is an amazing incident, uh, in the life of Paul that Paul puts forward as, as a really a weakness in the sense that, you know, God shows God's power in delivering him from this. Um, Paul goes on, <clears throat> he's talked about his heritage. He's talked about his sufferings. He goes on to talk about revelations from the Lord. He says of chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting. There is nothing to be gained, although there's nothing to be gained, he says. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I say this is the only time Paul said he must boast. Apparently, his rivals also claimed to have visions and revelations. Maybe the Corinthians saw this as what really makes these intruders superior to Paul. They've got these visions. They've got these revelations. So Paul says, you know, I've had them too. So he's going to match his rivals here in revelations <laughs> and visions beyond anything I'm sure they ever said. So he breaks his 14-year silence because he says in verse two, I know a man in Christ who was 14 years ago. So he hasn't spoken about this. This happened 14 years ago, and now he's going to tell about this vision that he had or whatever this was. Uh, it's not exactly clear. A vision, I, I, we assume, from the Lord. And so to do this would, would not edify the church or be a personal game. But the Corinthians would see he's not outmatched by his rivals in this area of boasting. Now, uh, he talks about visions and revelations. If we're trying to distinguish between visions and revelations, the difference is that a vision is always seen, whereas a revelation may be either seen or just perceived in some other way. All visions are revelations, but not all revelations come through visions. Um, 
And from Acts, it's clear that apart from the Damascus vision uh, of, of Christ, uh, you know, on the, on the Damascus road, when he was saved, Acts 9, he saw Christ, saw a vision there. He had a vision there. Uh, it's clear that Paul had, you know, other visions. Uh, Acts 9, um, there after, his, after, after the road to Damascus, when he's in Damascus, he saw a vision in a vision. He has another vision. A man named Ananias coming and placing his hands on him. Uh, Acts 16, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Acts 18 at you know, Corinth, one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Acts 22, when he was in Jerusalem, after his third missionary journey, he was praying, and I fell into a trance, saw the Lord speaking to me. So, and there's others, I just mentioned those. So Paul had a number of these visions, revelations, and so forth. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this, this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, when did Paul have this vision? I just mentioned here uh, the fact that uh, some people, I mean, when I was first a Christian, I often heard this, that this vision, when Paul was caught up into the third heaven, this was when Paul died at Lystra. Remember, we talked about on his first missionary journey, uh, first missionary journey, when Paul went on that journey, he went to Antioch of Pisidia, then Iconium, and then Lystra. These are all cities in, um, in uh, Galatia, southern Galatia. Um, so some have tried to identify this with that stoning. Remember, there, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So Paul was there in Iconium, and in Iconium, he got kicked out of Antioch, he got kicked out of Iconium. He goes to Lystra, and they won over the crowd, you know. Now, that's kind of amazing, because you remember the story there in Lystra. They're worshiping Paul and, and Barnabas as gods. They think they're gods that come down from heaven. But anyway, now, now these Jews come and convince them differently. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back in the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So, I mean, I heard that, well, Paul died and went to heaven. Paul died and went to heaven. And that's when this vision took place. Well, a couple of things about that. It doesn't say Paul died. Now, maybe he did, but it doesn't say he died. Now, it's it seems pretty miraculous what happened. He, he got stoned. <laughs> and he I, it says he's thinking he was dead. So I assume he didn't die, but he still, he got up. If you if you can get up after a stoning, that's pretty miraculous. So uh, I'm sure there was miraculous healing involved here. No question about that. Because the next day they leave, he and Barnabas leave Lystra and go into Derby. But the point is, it doesn't fit the chronology for uh, this particular incident of stoning when people say Paul died and he 
went up to heaven. It doesn't really uh, fit that. Um, if you take the writing of Second Corinthians here, everybody agrees around 56. This is 14 years later. This would be around 42. So that would be uh, at Paul's silent period. Acts 14, when the stoning occurred, would be about AD 47. Remember, the silent period is after Paul uh, is saved in Damascus, he goes into the desert for three years, or there's a three-year gap from the time he is saved until he goes to Jerusalem for the first time. And when he goes to Jerusalem at the end, remember of Galatians chapter one, uh, he gets opposition again. And they, so he goes back to Tarsus. He goes back to Tarsus and he stays there until Acts, you know, until uh, Barnabas in Acts 12 comes and gets him and takes him to Antioch. There's this silent period of maybe seven, eight, nine years. Well, that's when this took place because this AD 42 would be in that period when Paul, after Paul's conversion and when he was back in uh, his home area of Tarsus of Cilicia before he goes to Antioch in Acts chapter 12. So that's all we know about uh, this incident. Uh, um, Acts doesn't say anything about it. Uh, Paul's expression here, I say, uh, a man in Christ refers to himself. You know, he doesn't say, I, when I was caught, you know, I, you know, I, I was caught up into the third heaven. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Well, well how, who was that? Well, it was Paul. Well, how do we know that? Well, number of reasons. It's obvious, you know, he, he knew the exact time the revelation took place 14 years ago. He knew that. Uh, he knew that it was uh, content that was beyond words, even if it were permissible to try to communicate it. Uh, and we know it from what follows, because from what follows, it says that this thorn in the flesh was given to him because of this revelation to keep him from boasting. <laughs> so it, it, he relates this thorn to this revelation we're talking about here. Um, um, I mean, the fact that he says whether he was in the body or out of the, I don't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. That's a personal experience. He doesn't know personally whether I was in the body or not. Um, so Paul is just, this is just a way of, of minimizing his own boasting rather than say, look what happened to me and I, Paul, I know a man who was caught up, you know, so he's trying to minimize this boasting, uh, and so he's relating it to just this man in Christ. Um, I mean, if Paul was talking about some other person, what would that have to do with the argument of Paul is, is, is boasting about his accomplishments, his revelations, his visions? Well, if this is not Paul's vision, <laughs> what's the point, you know, if it's somebody else's? So clearly this is Paul. I say the scenes, the scene of the vision was paradise the abode of the righteous dead that is here located within the third heaven. Um, if Paul was uncertain, as he is, about the location of the vision, he was equally uncertain about whether this happened in the body or apart from the body. Um, conscience of God, his consciousness of God and, and what was going on with God totally eclipsed 
any awareness of his own physical world, the space, time, you know, he didn't, he didn't know that. Contrary to the kind of visions we hear about, you know, people die and they say, I went to heaven and I did this, you know, all this nonsense. Paul didn't, Paul, that was not Paul. He didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. He had, he didn't know. What Paul heard and apparently saw, human words were inadequate to relate, he says. What more, he says, it's not permitted to share this content. Uh, perhaps because it was designed for him alone. We don't know exactly why he was not permitted, but God did not permit him. Uh, it was designed, I mean, maybe it was designed to fortify Paul against what he was going up against. You know, he, he has a vision. He's caught up into heaven. He sees things there. He sees the future. And so this, this, this is a way to fortify him for his service, his sufferings. And that's the way the New Testament does it. It gives us glimpses of, the, of heaven, of the future, past uh, 2 Peter 3 and so forth. These glimpses, we don't know much about heaven. We don't know much about the future, what it's really like. But the glimpses that are given are meant to fortify us now, to give us strength. They're not meant to satisfy our curiosity, though certainly we're curious. I'm curious. But they're, they're given to strengthen us, and that's what Paul's vision would have been, been about. Verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think of me more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. So this distinction between Paul and the certain man of Christ, I say, uh, continues in verse 5, and naturally prompts the question, if Paul is speaking of himself in verses 2 four, through 4, why does he choose that third person? And I've, you know, I've, I've kind of mentioned that already. You know, he's, he's embarrassed, clearly, at his need to boast about all this thing. He wants to avoid the idea that he was, you know, some sort of special Christian uh, it was given to him as a, and a man in Christ. He's a Christian, not his own initiative. It was God's and so forth. He doesn't want to think of himself as something special. You know, there's nothing. This is what we often see with charlatans and so forth. They claim these kinds of things and they're something special and people should look to them. Uh, and although, although Paul recognizes the honor in this, uh, he says, I will not boast about a man like that. Um, he wanted to dispel any, any idea that this should be added to his personal status or make him more important than other people because of having this vision and so forth. I say here, Paul was prepared to boast if circumstances demanded it. And as we have said, he felt the Corinthians had driven him to it. But Paul will only boast about a man in Christ who had received a special revelation. Paul can only boast in a positive way if he looks at himself dispassionately. But when he considers himself personally, myself, uh, he can commend, he can only talk about and commend what his rivals would call weaknesses. Only experiences that showed his weaknesses were really the kind of material that he would he would identify with himself that he would boast about. 
Um, you know, if he po if he chose to boast like his rivals did, he would not be a fool. Uh, you know, uh, as they were, he wouldn't be a fool as as, as they were. Uh, so. Um, um, as we said, Paul had good reason to boast if he wished to do it, but he refrains because he wanted the Corinthians' estimate of him to be based on his rec on, on their recollections of him, of, of his credentials displayed at Corinth. His Corinthians were probably boasting, is his, he wants the Corinthians to evaluate him based upon his ministry at Corinth and not something else, not visions he had some other place, what he did somewhere else. That's what his probably his rivals were doing. They were boasting about other things done other places. Verse seven, <clears throat> or because of these surpassing great revelations. Um, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep Paul from boasting, becoming conceited because of surpassing great revelations, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh. Two points about this difficult verse are fairly clear. The agent implied by the phrase was given is God. Uh, I was given a thorn in the flesh. This is confirmed by the fact that the thorn was given to achieve a beneficial purpose, the prevention of spiritual conceit, and that Paul requested the thorn for the departure of the messenger. Uh, verse 8, as we'll see. The thorn was given immediately or shortly after the vision described in verses 2 through 4. In order to keep me from boasting, I was given this thorn in the flesh. So it's significant now in verses 7 through 10, Paul will speak of himself in the first person. Now he no longer talks about this man, third person, but now himself, I was given this thorn in the flesh. His re reputation was in no danger of being illegitimately enhanced by describing the outcome of the vision. The outcome was, hey, listen, I got this thorn in the flesh. Now, what is this thorn in the flesh? I say attempts to identify Paul's thorn are numerous. I could go into all of them, but it appears to be a physical disorder of some kind, since only a thorn in the body would appear to be an appropriate meaning for thorn in the flesh. So sometimes the word flesh, sarks, uh, speaks of the physical flesh. Quite often in Paul, it speaks of the sinful nature, my sinful flesh, but... <laughs> A thorn in the sinful nature would be a good thing. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. So that's not what it is. This is a thorn in his physical body that is very difficult for him to endure. Um, further support for this, for a physical problem, uh, can be found in, in, in Paul's description of his affliction as given by God and yet as a messenger of Satan. Um, you know, Satan appears to be God's agent. God uses Satan. Remember, 
Job uh, chapter two. Job, Job uh, is tested by God, but the test is delivered by Satan. Satan is the one who brings these difficulties to his family and to him physically. It's Satan who does it. God allows it. God permits it to test. But so it appears that that that, that Satan is God's agent uh, for the infliction of you know various disciplinary illnesses or whatever. Uh, you know, Paul says about in First Corinthians about the man who has committed incest, and the church has not exerted exercise church discipline to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Apparently this means, you know, you remove this person from the fellowship of the church. You don't treat him like a Christian anymore. You hand him over to the world out there. And hopefully if he's regenerate, he'll wake up and say, wow, you know, I'm out here. And this will destroy what is this sinful idea, these sinful aspects He'll come to his senses, and, he'll, and therefore, ultimately, he'll be saved if he really is regenerate a person. So uh, it appears that that's how God uses Satan sometimes, as, as in the case of Job, in these situations. Uh, at any rate, Paul uh, regarded it as caused by Satan, but allowed by God and used by God to accomplish an important purpose. The main reason of the thorn is called a messenger of Satan is probably due to the fact that he initially saw it as a hindrance to his ministry. You know, we often say something happens difficult, boy, Satan is hindering. And Paul says, Satan hindered me from coming to you, uh, you know, at certain places. So Satan is hindering us, but ultimately this is in God's providential control. We have to realize that God is ultimately in control of these things, though Satan is working to hinder. So he says, uh, you know, he says three times, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Uh, Paul, now 14 years after the incident, sees a good purpose in the thorn to keep him from becoming seated, conceited, verse 7. But initially... He was so troubled that he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. So he didn't see the good purpose at first. You know, he's got this difficulty, this physical difficulty, whatever it was. Some people say eyesight, maybe. Hard to know. And it could be anything. He saw this physical difficulty as, as a real problem for his ministry. He's pleading with the Lord to take it away. But then he comes to realize no, this is a good purpose. It keeps you from boasting. It has a purpose that God has designed for his good. But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So this is what God said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. Uh, so, I mean, this is an important verse here. His, you know, it's an important concept theologically <laughs> that in spite of whatever difficulties we may have, in spite of some in what our group has, you know, and is having, 
God's grace is sufficient, Paul says. It's also, you know, I think interesting to note here that uh, this should be a real problem for the faith healers. You know, there's the whole charismatic movement, many of them who say, the reason you're not you're you're just not healed because you don't have faith. If you just had faith, you would be healed. It's it's your, your lack of faith that keeps you from being healed. I once heard Jimmy Swaggart, the famous, uh, infamous, I guess, uh, Pentecostal preacher, evangelist, TV preacher, so forth, radio. Pre- I heard him on the radio, and he was going through this passage, and he talked about this, and he said, "Well." All I can say is Paul just didn't have the faith, man. He just didn't have, he could have been healed, but he didn't have the faith. And this is total nonsense. <laughs> you know, uh, no amount of faith would have removed that thorn, you know, because God said, my grace is sufficient. I want you mm-hmm. to endure this. So Paul says, my, uh, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul did not receive the answer to his prayer he hoped for. The thorn was not taken away. The thorn remained but so too did his recollection of the divine remedy. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace here means, you know, divine power, God's grace, God's power, enablement, Paul, will be sufficient for you. I'll get you through this. Uh, The grace of Christ, the grace of God was adequate for Paul, weak as he was, precisely because divine power finds its full scope and strength only in human weakness. That's when it's really displayed. The greater the Christians acknowledge weakness, the more evident Christ's enabling strength. But it's not simply uh, that weakness is a prerequisite for power. Both weakness and power existed at the same time in Paul's life. Power existed, but weakness existed, as they did in Christ's ministry and his death. Uh, the cross is the supreme example of power in weakness. It looked like weakness, but ultimately it was very powerful in what it accomplished. Therefore, that is why, Paul says, that is why. In light of the spiritual lesson Paul has learned, he would gladly boast about things that exposed his weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, rather than pray for the removal of the thorn and its attendant weakness. So it was not in the weaknesses themselves that Paul took delight, but in the opportunity that suffering endured for Christ's sake afforded him for Christ's power to reside and be effective in his life. So it's not delighted in the weakness himself, but what they accomplished in the sense of they afforded Christ's power to be evident. People could see the power of God, the power of Christ in Paul's life, when he was enduring this kind of thing. Uh, You know, when human strength abounds, it's not uncommon for the effects of God's power to be overlooked. But 
when you have human weakness, you often see, you know, real displays of God's power, God's grace in the life of Christians. Well, Paul goes on here, but we will uh, stop for tonight. Uh, Paul's signs of an apostle. He's still boasting and defending himself, though he, as we said, he doesn't uh, care to do it, but he'll go on here and talk about the signs, the indications of what an apostle is, what you have to display, which is signs, miracles, and wonders. Signs, wonders, and miracles are the signs of an apostle. So we'll talk about that next week, and that will be our final, we'll be able to finish up chapter 12 and chapter 13, Lord willing, next week. So let's stop here. Let me stop.